Good to see you all. My name is Dan Van Voris. Thanks for coming out to my talk. I am, I am terrible with time. I, 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 I look at my talk and I don't know if it's going to be 15 minutes or an hour and 15 minutes. Sometimes I go fast and then all of a sudden I've gone 10 minutes and all my material's gone. So we'll, uh, we'll see where we go. This is a breakout. Uh, if, if you don't know me, I am a, a scholar in residence with 1517 at 1517.org. I am the host of the Christian History Almanac, and that is where I spend all of my time. Uh, it is a daily six to eight minute podcast, and on the weekends we go a little bit uh, longer. I know some of you do listen to the show. Um, no one yet has come up to me and say, you don't look like I thought you would look, and I appreciate <laughs> that, because I get that sometimes. And I know it's weird, because you, you, know, you listen to me when you're making coffee in the morning, and now here, here I am with wild hair in the flesh. Um, Dave was great last night by starting with regional elements to kind of connect with you, the, the Midwesterners. So I, I wanted to start with something regional. Um, um, I, you don't know how lucky you are here in Minnesota to have a baseball team that is in the AL Central. What a lousy, lousy division. You can be like 500 and make the playoffs. And my dumb angels, we can't do anything. We've got the greatest player who's ever lived and we're just, we're awful. Uh, I'm not a replacements fan, sorry uh, Dave, uh, but I, I do enjoy a Husker Du. Any Husker Du fans here? Jayhawks? See, this is how we all right, there we go, Jayhawks. Now, I have a question here, this is legitimate. When it comes to the Twin Cities, which I was thinking about earlier, which is just delightful that you have two cities here in Minnesota and neither will go first, you know, so you're just the Twin Cities, it's not this Minneapolis or St. Paul, it's like, no, you go, no, you go. Here in the Twin Cities, when you think music, who is most associated with the Twin Cities and music? I've got two answers, but I need to hear from you. Prince. All right. Okay. Not what I had. <laughs> Bob Dylan. There you go. Save Bob Dylan. Um, also, I, I, because I was here a couple months ago, uh, the people at Mount Carmel Camp, one of whom is here. So there you go. Uh, they, they told me I had to have Culver's, the hamburger. And uh, I, I enjoy regional regional hamburgers, but uh, I, I've been to Texas a number of, too many times, um, and, and they said to go have the, the Whataburger, which is in, terrible, it's not good at all. So I was scared when they said go to Culver's, and it's, uh, it was very good. Culver's was delightful. All right, let's go to the, the real talk, not just the regional stuff. Um, this first section of the talk is uh, me establishing that I'm getting older. Uh, I, I was working with a film crew a couple weeks ago. I'm working on a film project. And as we're landing in Frankfurt, we have a group text with everyone working on the film. And the group text it comes and says, who's old enough to drive a rental car? <laughs> so I start asking around. It turns out I'm a decade older than everyone working on this project. It just, it's, my, my mortality is facing me. Uh, I had two two orange juices this morning, and I have heartburn, so if I, I it's because I'm getting old. I, I'm, I'm settling into to dad mode. I have an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old, and, and you know dad mode, I, I'm thinking a lot about weather patterns. 
Um, I, I talk to people and I look at them and I think I've got, I've got shoes older than you. Uh, it's, it's, it's disconcerting. I've got a, 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 a hay, a pitch. I won't do it here, but you know the dad hay that gets all misbehaving children to stop doing what they're doing. And then of course, as a guy fully entering into dad mode, I have come into my World War II phase. It just, I find myself thinking about tank warfare and Vichy France way more than I, I should. And it just so happens that I'm a uh, professional historian. So I have been able to, to blend these things uh, together. On the Christian History Almanac, on the weekend edition, over the past year, I have spent a lot of time talking about World War II, talking about World War II resistance, talking about uh, those Christians who exuded grace under pressure. I was just talking to someone here earlier about why Nazis fascinate us so much. Why, as a professor, if I put the Third Reich or Nazis in a class title, that class would fill up immediately. The History Channel is half aliens, half Nazis. We'll talk about aliens another time, it's not. And I think the reason why Nazis are, are so compelling is because they represent tangible, real evil. It's something that we can all kind of, well, most of us, most of us can say, yeah, that, whatever evil is, it's that. It's, it's Hitler and it's the concentration camps. And so as we love stories and we love stories of good versus evil, we have the easiest to find evil in Hitler and the death camps. And so I thought today what I would do is I would tell a few stories of Christians exuding that grace under pressure, living during World War II and during the Nazi regime, and then you'll see there will be a bit of a twist. The obvious go-to when talking about Nazi resistance and Christianity is uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Unfortunately, like Martin Luther, a lot of people quote him and reference him, and few have actually uh, read him. Both Luther and Bonhoeffer have been subjects of pseudo-biographies targeted to a, a certain kind of, of crowd. As I read through Bonhoeffer, and just so you know, most of these stories I've told in a little bit more detail on the Christian History Almanac, if you want to Google Christian History Almanac and then these names. Uh, but as I was going through Dietrich Bonhoeffer, what, what stuck out to me was how ill-prepared he was to be a martyr. How ill-prepared he was to be a hero. The, the book to read, my recommendation, would be the biography by Charles Marsh. Uh, one of the more recent biographies of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, there's one by Eberhard Bethke, and that's fantastic because Bethke and Bonhoeffer were, were great friends, and, and that's a helpful one. But there's something about this new biography by Charles Marsh that really gets into some of the complexity of Bonhoeffer. Marsh isn't afraid to show us sides of Bonhoeffer that we might not like. For instance, Bonhoeffer was a, was a dandy. He could be so uptight about what, 
what shoes he was wearing, and it, did it match his belt, and he would write home to his parents and say, can you send me uh, this outfit because I need it for the, the tennis club? And you're reading and you're thinking, this isn't the Bonhoeffer I, I grew up sort of hearing about. This is a guy who ran like Jonah, only to have his conscience demand he return home. Dietrich Bonhoeffer also doesn't really belong in any single confessional camp. I know Lutherans love to, to grab Bonhoeffer, but he lived in the United Church in, in Germany at the time and, and has similarities to Bart as, as much as to Luther. He had to work out his own ethics, not just as a professor, but as someone who was supporting a plot to assassinate Hitler. And you might know how the story ends. With the war coming to an end, Hitler specifically calls for Bonhoeffer's execution. Perhaps it was hanging by piano wire. Perhaps it was being uh, left with a meat hook up his back. And he's killed just days before the camp is liberated. Today, I want to tell you a few stories, but not Bonhoeffer so much as some of those about whom you may have never heard. Some of those more unsung heroes who resisted Nazis during World War II. One of my absolute favorite, favorite stories is that of Liza Polenko, or, or Liza uh, Skobotsova, also called Mother Maria of Paris. Mother Maria was born in 1891 in Riga, Latvia. Her uh, father was a mayor of a small town on the Black Sea, and in 1905, he tragically died, and this shook her faith. As a matter of fact, she said she stopped believing in anything when her father died. The following year, 1906, she moved with her mother to St. Petersburg, and there she was present for uh, that which would become the Russian Revolution, and she would get very, very involved with the Bolsheviks. She met her first husband there, Dmitri, and they were uh, proud Bolsheviks, proud communists. Their first child was born in 1913. Liza and Dmitri end up divorcing. Uh, they, they're talking about spiritual things because they're still interested a little bit. Uh, interestingly, he would go off to become a Catholic priest, and she would stay behind with the Bolsheviks. In 1916, she applied to study at the St. Petersburg Theologi Theological Academy. She's not a Christian, she's a woman, but she says, I want to go ask questions about the faith I've abandoned, the faith that my revolutionary compatriots say is a, a damnable thing. When the revolution, when the revolution uh, started, it, it threw her into a, a crisis of conscience. Too many deaths, too much violence. So she fled back to her hometown of Anapa where her father was once a mayor. Uh, the, the whites end up taking over Anapa and as a red, she is put on trial. The judge during that trial was a man named Daniel Skopsova. He was a, a sympathetic former teacher who saw these charges as trumped up, and, and he pardoned her. She caught up to him, thanked him, and they eventually get married. But now with the revolution in full swing, they're on the run, and so by 1923, they arrive in Paris. She has two children with Daniel. 
and then in 1927, he leaves. Now she is a twice-divorced woman living in Paris, and this is when she comes uh, to faith. She does so through the lives of saints, looking at those Christians who have lived before. Something that if you listen to the Christian History Almanac, you know I'm, I'm quite partial to learning our, our family tree. In 1930, she becomes a secretary with the Russian student Christian movement. And in 1932, she is officially tonsured as Mother Maria. In 1932, she opens up a house. She takes in needy refugees, mostly Russian. Could hold about 25. She eventually moves to a stable that's converted into a church and a home for some hundred refugees. She works with Nikolai Berdaev with Orthodox Action. If you know Berdaev, let's talk later. He's a fascinating guy. During this time, however, two of her children uh, die. And so she has to deal with the the, the tragedy of, of that. In 1939, she meets uh, one Father Dimitri. And Father Dimitri and Mother Maria will be forever linked. It was in March of 42 that all Jews were required to wear the infamous yellow star of David on their clothing, and the march to the final solution had begun. And so she and, and Father Dimitri and her son, Yuri, decide they are going to do everything they can to save Jewish people. And there is one document that can be a lifesaver in Nazi-occupied France. A certificate of baptism. So Father Dimitri starts forging baptismal records for Jewish people. There, there's, some, there's some issues there, right? Now, there are some stories of these Jewish people saying, someone who would do that for me, I want to join wherever they are. And we have some. But outside of that, it was just a falsified document. And they would make hundreds of these. And eventually, it was his doing in. He was caught and, and sent to a concentration camp. During that time at the Velodrome de Hiv, uh, many of the undesirables, the Jewish, were, were sent there. And Mother Maria found that because of her habit, she was allowed in. This, this was an absolutely ghastly place. The, the Velodrome where they have the, the bike races. There's some 13,000 people. There are 10 toilets. It is an absolute uh, hellhole. Mother Maria realizes the only thing that comes in and out is the garbage. So she works with some garbage men, and they start getting children in trash bags, put into garbage trucks, and dropped off in the south of France. It's a remarkable story. And her faith and, and her writings are, are such um, wonderful testimonies to one who didn't believe and then came to believe and then exuded a grace under pressure that I, I can't imagine. She's eventually caught. She's sent to a concentration camp. And there at the concentration camp, she ministers to other women. 
and we know about this because some of them made it out and they would all talk about Mother Maria of Paris. As a matter of fact, she had a few memorize something in case she didn't make it that they could say on her behalf if they got out and she didn't. It was this. My state at present is such that I completely accept suffering in the knowledge that this is how things ought to be for me, and if I am to die, I see this as a blessing from on high. Maria was sent to the gas chamber on March 31st, 1945, exactly one month before it was liberated. She died somewhat fittingly on what was Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. Her story is one of incredible sacrifice and grace under pressure, but there's another story even less known than Mother Maria of Paris. It is the story of the Dutch woman, Diet Iman, D-I-E-T-E-M-E-N. Diet was born in the south of Holland in The Hague in 1920. Her story isn't as radical as a Bonhoeffer or a Mother Maria. It's a, a rather simple story. The story of a, a, a Dutch Christian woman whose faith led her to resist the Nazis in Holland. Many in her church succumbed to the pressure to become Nazis. She recounts uh, people from her church who had put up pictures of Hitler on their hearth to show that they were, they were cool with this new regime. She couldn't believe how someone could, could square that. And so she gave herself to a resistance movement, a peace movement. She would steal uh, ration cards or forge them to get to the Jewish population of the Netherlands after the Nazi invasion. There's a story in April of, of 1944. Diet has all of these forged cards, all of this cash, essentially everyone's name and number she has on her person. She's on a train, and as the Gestapo come by to check cards, she gives them a card and says it's her original. It's not. They had changed the color coding. So they realized she was a liar. So they take her off the train. Imagine the fear. She's got all the documents under her jacket. And just then, uh, as it was raining, one of the Gestapo officers took out a fancy new article. It was a plastic overcoat. And the other five members of the Gestapo were just amazed with this plastic overcoat. And so they all start looking at it. Dee takes the folder out and skids it across the rainy ground, hoping no one sees, no one picks it up. They pat her down, they check her, she pretends she can't speak German. She gets the documents and leaves. It's an amazing story, but, but with Deed, unlike Anne Frank, whose story was immediately and thankfully told, or, or Corey Tenboom, who Deed knew, Deed wasn't sure she could tell her story. Her story involved her fiance, who joined her in the resistance and was murdered by the Nazis. She had, had kept records of everything. She had kept a journal the whole time, but was determined to never let the story out. Some 30 years later, she had moved to, to Grand Rapids, Rapids, Michigan. And she decided with a friend that she was going to tell her story. And over the next 20 years, they put together a book called The Things We Couldn't Say. 
it, it's got some cloak and dagger, it's got some near escapes like the one I, I just told you of, but it's a much quieter role on her reflection in the resistance. She's had time to reflect and she has survivor's guilt. She has to live with the pressure of living a life spared. I was thinking about the, the end of Saving Private Ryan. If you remember this with Private Ryan, he's old now and he's at the, the grave site and there's that, that um, he's reflecting on the promise that he had to make his life count, make his life a good life. And that, that part of the film and the story has always uh, crushed me. The pressure of living a worthy life. Maybe we need the grace to not have to live that kind of worthy life. Not that we can't strive to love and to serve, but I think of the pressure of Mother Maria and the pressure on uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It was intense and short and ended in martyrdom. And then they saw Jesus face to face. But what about Diet Iman? She died in 2019, 99 years old. Suffering with that survivor's guilt. And this leads me to another World War II character. He was made famous in the book, The Man Who Couldn't Talk. It is the story of George Dupre. He was a man who enlisted in the Royal Canadian Air Force. He was from Calgary at the outbreak of World War II. He was sent to England, and his story, as it plays out in this book, is that he's sent to Vichy, France. He's living under Nazi rule, and he's helping English, down English pilots escape. He's been sent there, trained to play the role of the village idiot, so no one suspects him, and he's helping men escape, and, and then eventually he is uh, caught. He's tortured. His fingers are, are broken in a vise. He was given an acid enema, which I had never heard of before. He was beaten to the point of needing plastic surgery, and then once he finally escaped and was let out back in Canada, he was a, a lifelong Boy Scout and Boy Scout leader, he became famous for this story and he told it in evangelistic settings. He talked about his faith in God, uh, kind of corny, but he said you can't have guts without God, and he would speak for free anywhere he was asked. And then his story was told with the help of a reporter, and it became a best-selling book. I'm gonna go to Time Magazine from 1953 and read a bit about this story. Uh, the feature in the current issue of Reader's Digest is a condensation of The Man Who Wouldn't Talk, a spine-chilling tale about a gentle spy by Quentin Reynolds. In Reynolds' crackling repertorial prose, the book describes quiet religious George Dupre, a Canadian who entered British intelligence early in World War II and prepared for a strange mission. For nine months, he was trained to behave like the village half-wit so that he could play the part of a harmless, moronic French garage mechanic after he was dropped behind the German lines. 
The book told how Dupre helped smuggle Allied flyers out of enemy territory until the Gestapo picked him up. The Nazis tortured him with a sulfuric acid enema, poiled, poured boiling water into his clamped open mouth, squashed his finger in a vice, gave him, sat, gave him savage beatings. But Dupre, by his own account, never told the Germans, just mumbled dumbly, I don't know, until he was finally released. Last week, Dupre, Arthur, er, Arthur Reynolds, the Reader's Digest and Random House, the book's publisher, were all themselves subjected to the most horrible torture in publishing. Across page one, the Calgary Herald was the headline, Calgarian admits Secret Service story was a fabrication. George Dupre tells Harold he was never in France as a spy. He made the whole thing up. Time goes on. There are so many holes in his story, it's hard to imagine Dupre expecting to get away with it. Arthur Reynolds candidly said he had been duped by the greatest hoax ever perpetrated. Reader's Digest editor DeWitt Wallace was equally stunned explained that the Digest would confess its error in its January issue. This mistake, said Random House's president, Bennett Cerf, is a beaut. As a matter of fact, it was so, such a best-selling book, Reader's Digest didn't want to stop publishing it, so they just moved it from nonfiction to fiction. It's a, it's a tragic story. George explained later that he had gone to such lengths to impress his wife. She would ultimately learn that it wasn't true, and as he was sinking deeper and deeper into his lies, it eventually came out. Dupre sunk into anonymity and died in obscurity, wanting to be impressive. I think there's a pressure to have this kind of story. And it can lead Christians to sometimes tell dubious stories, to try to be impressive, to try and exaggerate. There's one story on the Christian History Almanac that I have not yet told, and I don't know if I ever will. So just you guys in the room get to know this. It's not about Nazis, but it's about Satan worship. It's a book that came out in the 1980s called The Satan Seller by a guy named Mike Warnke. Warnke tells the story of how he was a high priest in the satanic church. He had taken every kind of drug. He had done terrible sacrificial things in the church of Satan. And then it came out in Cornerstone Magazine that it was all a lie. Warnke needed the stage. Warnke still needed some kind of uh, attention. And so he went from being ex-satanic priest to Christian stand-up comedian. It's tragic, it's sad, it's gross. He's a man who is living under the pressure of being impressive. And like George Dupre, it destroyed him. A friend uh, just about a week ago asked what I was speaking on at this conference. And so I gave him the brief rundown of the talk, ending with the, the pressure of needing to be impressive, of having a story that distinguishes you. 
And so my friend there at the, the Chipotle in Lake Forest, California said, so Dan, it's somewhat autobiographical. <laughs> well, I guess now it is, geez. It stuck with me. And it wasn't where I was going, but now I am. What if the pressure isn't Nazis, but the pressure is being unimpressive? What if the grace under pressure is to give yourself grace and others grace with that pressure to be impressive? My first year at school was uh, second grade. It's a long story. I was a smaller version of the anxious, chubby guy I am now. And it was a second, third grade split, and somehow I ended up in the third grade part, and we were reading uh, the, the Tempest in the third grade by Shakespeare, which is, is crazy. Like, I don't know, it's one of those high-achieving schools. That's why it <laughs> messed with my head. And somehow we did like a family feud version of the game show with characters from the Tempest. I, I only know this because they recorded it. And me, this awkward, weird little kid, I'm hosting the game show as a second grader. And then that same year, we had a mock presidential debate. And two people were chosen, one Michael Dukakis, and I was George H.W. Bush. New kid at the school, as anxious then as I am now, and, you know, groups of people. And that became my MO. I stood in front of people. I did acting as a teenager. I worked as a, as a teenager with a, a professional improvisational comedy team. I thought I was going to go that direction. My, li my life took a swerve, and I ended up in academia. And with the role of the professor, once again, I was standing up front. And in doing so, I felt the need to be impressive. After all, why, why should you listen to me? And then in 2017, it's not the same as Do Pray, but I also published a book based on my own story. Not talked about that book since 2018, and if I could get a mulligan in life for one thing, I'd use it on that. Unlike Do Pray, the stories are true, but I was, I was angry. I had recently left college. I was working with this startup, 1517. I was feeling unimpressive. I was, I was being prodded on by other angry people. I was vulgar and overconfident. I felt the need to be impressive. And as someone who dealt professionally with autobiography, I thought I could do the same myself. Make you like me as someone who was willing to tell you all the stories, to unpack my baggage in public, to be impressive. I ended up, just after the publication of that book, in a mental hospital. I had to spend six months out of commission putting my life together after it had completely fallen apart. Part of my moving to do the show, The Christian History Almanac, which I do today, uh, it's a, a, a daily show, it's a short show. Instead of the, the weekly podcast I'd done before where I, I you know, pontificated and the like, is that I wanted to subvert myself. I didn't want to be a personality. I wanted to simply be the voice that told the stories. 
And if you listen to the first year or so of the Christian History Almanac, it's a little stiff. Someone said, uh, he, he sounds like William Shatner. And I'll own that in that first year. Weird pauses. I still do weird pauses, but that's just because I, I don't know, I'm weird. Um, and then over time, my wife and others have said, no, be, 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 have a personality. People like that. But I've needed the grace to not feel the pressure to be impressive. I've needed the grace to find my vocation, to stop the constant striving for more, to ditch the feeling of being a fraud in what I do, and rest in the grace of Jesus. It's ironic, perhaps, that at the end of every show, I say everything is going to be okay, because oftentimes I have a hard time believing it. Now, your life isn't mine, but where do you feel the pressure to be impressive? With your kids, with your spouses, with your in-laws? Hear the grace that you don't have to be. I don't know what the working world will look like for my kids when they get older. We live in one of those places with the good schools that Dave talked about. I hear about side hustles and rise and grind. The pressure to have an impressive CV. I'm reminded of a line from the, the movie Garden State where one of the characters uh, sitting on the, the couch takes a rip from a bong and then says, uh, I don't know, I put that part in. Uh, says, uh, uh, I like being unimpressive. I sleep better. Your identity isn't in being impressive, but it is hidden in Christ. Your only call is to be a conduit, even faulty and leaky, to be the love of Jesus to your neighbors. I'm going to end with a recommendation. And it is going back to the Nazis. It's a, a movie about Nazis and a man named Franz Jägerstädter. It's a movie called A Hidden Life by Terence Malick. It came out in 2019, and it is a remarkable story of a Christian exuding grace under pressure amidst the Nazi regime. And hear that, that title, A Hidden Life. And according to Malik, that title was twofold. First, it came from a quote from George Eliot's Middlemarch, in which a character says, for the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. The reason things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been are because of those unhistoric acts, people living a faithfully hidden life in unvisited tombs. And of course, that hidden life, that language comes from Colossians 3, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So let me end with a kind of benediction, if you will. You are free from having to be impressive to the world. 
You are free from the need of a magnificent legacy or reputation. You may have those things, you may not. And in the end, we will all end up in the ground until that great day, the day of the resurrection of the body when we will see face to face, when we learn that the rumors of grace, forgiveness, and the redemption of all things were really true. Everything is going to be okay. Thank you. So this is a... This is a breakout. I don't know what our time is. Do we have five minutes, ten minutes, something like that? Five. Uh, I, I, I love doing Q&A because in my, my regular job, I'm just sitting in front of a microphone, and I love seeing people's faces. Um, for recording purposes, I will repeat the question if anyone has questions. It can be about Nazis. It can be about uh, whatever is on your mind. Who's got something? Yes. Mm. It's, there's, there's an amazing prayer by Diet Iman. The, the question was, she thought she was going to hear about how we might see in the Nazis our, our own evil, the depths of our own evil. And there is a, a great quote by Diet Iman in her book, The Things We Couldn't Say, where she finds herself praying for the Nazis and saying, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be just as they are. That my hatred of them would actually turn me into someone as ugly as them. Uh, if you, I mean, I recommend all these things, but Deet Iman, Things We Couldn't Say, is a remarkable story and a reflection on that. Other questions? Yes. Mm-hmm. At least I'm not a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> right? and, and my sister, I don't know, I just think about this because my sister is a high school history teacher. And, you know, she's like, yes, it's so important to know about, you know, the Nazis. But it's also important to know about all of these other genocides that have happened in history and mm-hmm. how easy it is for it to happen now. So the reflection was that, that oftentimes Nazis, we push out and say, well, at least I'm not a Nazi. Right? I might be bad, but I'm not Hitler bad. And, and somehow that can disconnect us from them. So perhaps we do well to look at other genocides, to look at other evils. I don't know about you guys, but I am, I, I try and stay away from the news as much as I can. And just the rise of neo-Nazi fascism talk, even if it's just trying to be real edgy, it's disgusting. And people have found that there is there's something in being transgressive and being as, as far out as you can, and so we're embracing things like neo-Nazism. I think it's, it's good to remember we're only a generation away from that kind of thing happening, and so it's good to look at others, to look at other genocides and other times when, when good people just stopped resisting evil. Uh, I mean, D. Iman's story of, of the people from her church putting pictures of Hitler up on their hearths. And she says, no, 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 no. 
we need to, to watch and, and guard ourselves. Oh, we've got a question in the back. Yeah, about, yeah, about erasure of the, uh, the Holocaust. Uh, you can only erase the Holocaust from history if you have an ideology that is so pressing, uh, it, 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 it skips over facts. Right, the facts are there, that's not there. But we have ideologies that are so powerful that they allow us to dismiss facts. And that's a dangerous thing. And as Christians, uh, we are fact people, right? And so we need to make sure we're not, we're not taken in. All right, um, as, as awkward as I am, if you want to talk to me outside, I'd, I'd love to answer more questions. Sometimes that happens, people don't want to ask their questions up here. Uh, so be, be well fed.